0: The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 non-stop destination for A's Baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is green and gold history. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. A's hey, the oh. world champions. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. It's now time for a little Green and Gold History here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. And we have our A's historian, Dave Feldman. And we're doing top 10 first baseman all time in Oakland A's history. This is going to be one of the more fascinating ones because the A's have had some very good first basemen. I cannot wait. Feldy, let's get this thing going.
1: You know, first base has been uh, the age of some great players in Oakland history, and they've had players at first who have, let's just say, stirred up a lot of emotion among the fan base. Uh, Guys who uh, you either hate or you love, Uh, it's going to be an interesting list to go down.
0: Derek Barton better not be in your top ten. I'm just saying that right now. Well, you might want to hold on to your seat, because I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. (laughs) All right. One of my favorite things about doing uh, green and gold history, these top tens, is your honorable mention. And you bring these (laughs) names up that are blasts from the past. So who is the honorable mention?
1: Yeah, so here are some players who uh, would have made our list if the list was longer. Uh, Going way back to when the first moved to Oakland, Danny Cater, uh, Don Mincher. Don Mincher had a huge pinch hit in the '72 World Series. Uh, more recent vintage. How about somebody like Yonder Alonso, who made the All-Star team for the A's? Uh, now, current A's coach Mike Aldretti. Disco Danny Meyer, who had a big neck shake every time he batted. How about the tall one, Nate Freiman? Wow. Uh, Ike Davis. More recent vintage. Uh, Carlos Pena, who the A's thought was going to be there for their first baseman in 2002. Ron Fairley, who became better known as a giant broadcaster. Rob Nelson, who beat out Mark McGuire to be the opening day first baseman in 1987. Dave Magadan, Chris Carter, and then two of my favorites who really aren't thought of as Oakland Athletics, but one is Dusty Baker, who played a lot of first base for the A's in 85 and 86. And then Dick Allen, or Richie Allen, as he was first known. But when Dick Allen played, uh, he did a nickname on the back of his uniform. Wampum was his name on the back of his uniform, because that's where he was from, Wampum, Pennsylvania.
0: Dusty Baker, wow. I mean, that's something you – I mean, I think back, and I know he played a little first. I didn't know he played that much first base.
1: Yeah, he played a lot of first uh, in a kind of a platoon with somebody who's going to be on our list a little later uh, as a right-handed platoon. He played a lot of first. He wasn't much of an algorithm with the A's, more of a first baseman, D.H. Uh, had a really good year his first season with the A's and kind of tailed off in his second year. But uh, a good athletic overall.
0: Would Ike Davis go down as one of your best position players to pitch for the athletics? See, that's
1: a good call. That's a good call. That, that's a list we could, uh, we could visit <laughs> later on. Position players who have pitched, who are the best. Ike Davis, because he was a tremendous pitcher uh, growing up. Uh, and his dad, of course, Ron Davis with the Yankees, who was just lights out as, as a middle reliever. So, yeah, Ike Davis, he'd be right up there as position player pitching.
0: Former Arizona State Sun Devil. That would be interesting. All right, so we've gone through our honorable mention. Let's start with number 10.
1: Number 10 is Dan Johnson. Now, Dan Johnson was the A's seventh-round pick in 2001 at the University of Nebraska, worked his way up. And in 2005, uh, as his rookie season, he has a tremendous year. He hits 275 with 15 home runs, an OPS over 980. You think this is, this is something. The A's got something in Dan Johnson, right? Kind of tailed off in 06. Uh, only hit 234 and sort of got moved out of first base and onto the bench when the A's acquired Jay Payton uh, because Jay Payton went to the outfield and that moved Dick Swisher to first base. But he comes back in 07, has another 18-homer year, uh, 72 walks. He's a good player. But the A's never really took to him. And in 2008, he's actually DFA'd. Boom, just gone. They didn't even try and trade him. They just DFA'd him, and he moved on to Tampa, had some huge home runs in Tampa Bay history, one in 2008 at Fenway Park. He had a game-tying pinch-hit homer in his first at-bat as a Ray off of Papelbon, which, you know, that's a Rays team that went to the World Series. And then in that great last game of the 2011 season where the Rays had to win, had to win to get in the playoffs, and he gets a two-out bottom-of-the-ninth pinch-hit home run to tie it. So Dan Johnson, who's also a big name in the Tampa Bay history, but he checks in at number 10 in Oakland A's history.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. I remember watching that. that. That was truly one of the great games. Evan Longoria was big in that game. That was truly one of the great games I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it was It was really the night that baseball decided that they're going to go to this one-game wild-card playoff, uh, which has obviously hurt the A's, especially this season. But because that night, it all came down to these games going on at the same time, the Red Sox playing in Baltimore, the Yankees playing in Tampa. And it was just happening at once, and it was a one-game sort of situation. And baseball said, we need this. We need to make sure we always have this to start our postseason. And by doing that, it was adding a second wild card team to have these one-game playing games. And it was really that night in 2011 that brought that on.
0: Yeah, that uh, that, that was some clutch stuff back in the day. Let's go to number nine. Who's number nine?
1: Number nine. He was once referred to as baseball's version of Bill Walton. Bruce Bakhti. Now, this is a guy who kind of gets lost in A's history, but he was your A's first baseman from 1984 to 86. Originally played college at Santa Clara, came up with the Angels. He was an all-star with the Mariners. But after the 1982 season, at just 32 years old, he retires from baseball. And the quote was, he was fed up with the business of baseball and worried about how the world is going. So he (laughs) took his wife and two kids and moved to Puget Sound in Washington. He enrolled in the Chinook Institute of Learning to expose himself to thinkers and kind of just immersed himself in this save the world sort of thing. And this is, this is a productive left-handed bat. He's a left-handed bat with some power. He's a 300 hitter. So the A's with the great Sandy Alderson, working his magic, talked him into coming to the A's, and, You know, basically ending his sabbatical. Uh, he joined the A's in 84. It wasn't great. It, the year off hurt him. He only hit 264 with five homers. Uh, he was slow. Uh, but in 85, now you're starting to see what Bruce Bochy was. He hit 295. He hit 14 bombs. He had an OPS over 800. 86, the numbers start to tail off, and now the A's have some first baseman in waiting. They have Mark McGuire. They have Rob Nelson waiting. So Bochy's days were then numbered in 1986. And again, platooning with Dusty Baker at first base in those years. But for three years, Bruce Bakhti, the baseball version of Bill Walton, was your A's everyday first baseman.
0: Where would you put Bill Walton top 10 all time in White Sox broadcasters?
1: You know he would. He did tremendous. I think he's. You know you got Hawk Harrelson, You got Tom Petruk, and I think you got Bill Walton right there, number three.
0: <laughs> you, you know you know where Bill Walton, as someone has like myself has suffered all these years through rain delay theater. Rain. I'm telling you right now, Bill Walton would be incredible during rain delays.
1: You know I've had the pleasure of, of producing basketball games with Bill Walton as the, as the color analyst, and it's always it's a trip, Bill. What you see on the air is a lot what Bill is like in real life. Uh, he's got ways that he goes about things. But here's the thing that I don't think people appreciate, how much work he puts in. He goes to shoot-arounds for basketball games. You know, that happen six hours before the game. Teams are practicing. He's talking to every player, every coach, taking copious notes. He really does put in the work. And then when he goes on the air, yeah, it's a little bit of a show. But when he's into that game, he is really good. He's a strange dude, but he's a really good broadcaster.
0: Well, and, and the thing about it, too, I mean, if, if he doesn't have the bad feet, he's truly one of the best players to have ever played. He's one of the best college players. You know what he did with Portland. And then, of course, you know, kind of being the sixth man for the Boston Celtics, one of the great teams of all time. But he's really the nicest guy. I mean, he could be this egomaniac. I mean, but talk about, you know, and we'll get back to A's baseball, but Bill Walton <laughs> really, he's a good person.
1: He is a good person. If you if you ever go to a basketball game where he's at or he's working, wait till after the game because people come down and they line up to talk to him, shake his hand, get autographs, and he has time for every person who gets in line. Uh, He will not blow anybody off, and he is genuinely nice. He loves people. Um, He is just. He's Bill Walton. Hey, there's something special about him, and people are drawn to him. I know his broadcasting style; it grates on a lot of people. That he loses his way, and he just kind of oh. Have you ever been? Have you ever seen a bridge, Roxy? Roxy, have you ever seen a bridge? I mean, he just loses it. But, but he's a, he is generally an awesome person.
0: Number eight all-time Oakland A's first baseman. Yeah, number eight's
1: another guy who kind of gets lost in Oakland history because he played in the late 70s, early 80s on, on some bad A's teams. That's Dave Revering. Now, Revering was acquired from the Reds for the 78 season for Doug Bear, and he's installed as the A's first baseman. Again, the 78, 79, A's teams are not good. But he's hitting 271 in 78 with 16 homers. He's hitting 288 in 79 with 19 homers. Kind of a platoon with Jeff Newman. Jeff Newman was also, you know, a catcher with the A's, but he would play first uh, against left handers and Revering. Left-handed hitter would play first in his righties. Nineteen eighty, and Billy Martin's first year as the A's manager. And Dave Revering hits two ninety with fifteen homers. And you're talking a two ninety average of the Coliseum in nineteen that, eighty? that's usually not seen. This was a really good hitter. Um, in eighty one, though, the A's trade Revering to the Yankees. Uh for Jim Spencer and Tom Underwood. Jim Spencer, another left handing in the first base, because Jim Spencer is one of Billy Martin's guys. You loved Jim Spencer when he was a Yankee manager. Brought Jim Spencer over to the A's, and with the A's, he was just not good. Uh, he was not a good player. It ended up being a bad trade for the A's. Because uh, you look at Revering in his career, finished his career as an A with a 279 average. And believe it or not, that's the eighth highest batting average among all Oakland athletics with over 1,500 plate appearances. That's the eighth-best hitter, Dave Revering. I think he gets he gets lost in Oakland
0: history. Number seven.
1: Oh, your favorite, Derek Barton.
0: Uh, how? Now, think about this.
1: Think about this for a second. Now, he's originally acquired from the Cardinals, in the Mark Mulder deal comes over with Dan Heron and Kiko Calero. So he's with the A's. He plays for the A's from 2007 to 2014. Okay, he goes to the playoff years. He's part of that team. This guy, Derek Barton, plays eight seasons with the A's. Now, he comes up in September of 2007, and he lights it on fire. Very much a little bit like we saw with Seth Brown this year, a little bit like we saw with Sean Murphy. He comes up in September. Derek Barton, he had 347 with four homers in 18 games. So they, the A's think, we got something. So in 2008, he's going to be the A's everyday first baseman. And he was. And he was not good. He hit 226 with only nine homers and just a three twenty-seven on on-base percentage. He was not good. So 2009, they said, we got we got to fix this. We can't have Derek Barton. So remember, they bring in Nomar Garcia-Para. They sign Jason Giambi. They actually move Bobby Crosby to first for a time. Tommy Everidge comes up from the minors. He's playing first base. Then at the end of the year, Derek Barton gets to play again. And guess what? He hits 330 in his last 26 games. 330. So, what happens as we go into 2010? Who's your everyday first baseman? Derek Barton. In 2010, Barton plays 159 games. He hits 273. He leads the league with 110 walks. He has a 393 on base percentage. Derek Barton is a, is a factor in this offense and an offense that was really. You know, Again, on-base percentage and power, he was the on-base percentage guy. And he was a pretty good defender, above average for sure. So now, Derek Barton, he's coming into his own, right? 2011 starts. He's your everyday first baseman. What happens? He hits 212. He has no home runs. And by June, he is sent down and he's gone. He's replaced by Connor Jackson, Brandon Allen, anybody but Derek Barton. 2012 starts the season as the everyday first baseman. Gets off to a bad start, and down again. Can't get rid of this guy, though. 2013, there he is, Derek Barton. This playoff team, 2013. He's DFA'd twice during the season. Nobody picks him up, and he becomes the A's everyday first baseman down the stretch in 2013, hitting 301. He even starts game one of the playoffs. Now, he goes over three with three strikeouts for Scherzer, but he starts game one. 2014 rolls around. Who's your opening day first baseman? Derek Barton. Now, he's terrible. He goes nine for 57. He hits 158. Finally, he's out of options. He's DFA'd, and he's gone. And Derek Barton leaves the A's organization. But for eight seasons, he's a part of his A's team. Some good, a lot of bad, but he seemed to be always there. And at the end of time now, as playing as a a first baseman in Oakland history, only Mark McGuire and Jason Giambi have played more games at first than Derek Barton.
0: That is... It's unbelievable to me, and I've done a lot about that on the post-game show. Trivia question. How many games did Derek Barton play in the big leagues after he left the A's? I think it was zero. That would be zero. All right, number six. Number six, Mike
1: Epstein. Mike Epstein, this is a guy who played football at Cal under Marv Levy.
0: Wow. He was going to
1: be a football player. He was the running back behind Craig Morton. A future Super Bowl starting quarterback. So, but he quits football at Cal after his sophomore season to concentrate on baseball because walking across campus one day, there was like baseball going on, and he just got into the box and just playing around and hitting the ball. And the baseball coach sees what he can do. He says, "No more football for you. You're playing baseball." <laughs> and because if you play baseball, you're not going to get hurt. Good choice for Mike Epstein. This is a guy who ends up. Um, going to the senators he's coached by ted williams and all ted williams taught him to do because he loved his swing he said just swing at strikes right don't don't chase just swing at strikes and that changed everything for epstein uh the a's acquired him in the middle of 71 they traded daryl knowles um so they acquired daryl Knowles and mike epstein from the senators 71 with the a's he hits 18 homers in only 104 games Sets an A's record by homing and homering in four straight at bats over two games, and 72. You know it's a World Series year again. He hits 270 with 26 homers, which led the 72 A's. He also talk about power hitters in a different time. 68 walks, 68 strikeouts in 72. Again, just swinging at strikes. So Mike Epstein was a force. Uh, The only problem was he got in a fight with Reggie Jackson during a clubhouse fight. And then he gets, on an argu- he gets in an argument with Dick Williams on a plane back to Oakland after game two of the World Series. So that didn't sit well with Dick Williams. Didn't sit well with Charlie Finley. Those are two guys you don't really get in fights with. So he gets traded. The A's decide to move Gene Tennis, who was their catcher to first base, and acquire Ray Fossey. So in a way, Mike Epstein's fights brought us Ray Fossey.
0: The face of the franchise, Ray Fawcett. You know what's interesting about that? Just think how simple that is from Ted Williams. Hey, just swing at strikes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. You know, you, you know the great ones? I always remember this too. There's the great ones, they always make it so easy and that's why it's hard for them to coach sometimes. You know, Pete Rose was a terrible coach because he couldn't coach what he did. And Ted Williams is a little like that too. It's just like just swing at strikes. He'll be fine. Just do what I did: swing and strikes. Still had 400. (laughs) The other thing, you know, Mike Epstein has a little bit more with A's history too, because he became a youth baseball coach in Southern California, and he ends up coaching a very young Eric Chavez, and helped turn him into a big league hitter.
0: Wow, that is very good knowledge, and that's why we bring on the A's historian. Dave Feldman here to do top 10 Oakland A's all-time. We go position by position today here on AceCast, powered by TuneIn. We're doing top 10 first baseman. And here is your top five, number five.
1: Number five with a bullet, and that's Matt Olson. He is rocketing up this list. Um, the A's have something here, and I think it's you really need to sit back and appreciate what he's done in just two and a half years with the A's. Uh, The home runs, obviously, and the defense, which has just been outstanding. This is a guy who was a first-round pick in 2012 out of high school. He started his pro career at age 18, very young. But in 2013, in his first year in A-ball, he hits 23 homers. The next year, 20 years old in Stockton, hits 37 homers. So the A's know they have something. You know, see a young guy with power like that at that age with a wooden bat for the first time, I think the A's knew they had something special. And when they finally brought him up in 2017, it was kind of – they brought him up as an outfielder, right, because Yonder Alonso was playing first base. And he was kind of lost up there, and he really struggled. And, you know, finally, once they traded with Yonder Alonso and they put Olsen at first base where he belonged, tremendous. 24 homers in 59 games. He finished fourth in the rookie of the year. Was the third most home runs ever by an Oakland rookie, again, in only 59 games. That year he had 24 homers. He had 23 singles. He out-homered himself with the singles. So you know you have something. And then the last two seasons, right? 29 homers in 2018, wins the gold glove. And then last year, in 2019, you're dealing with a hammock bone, missing the first month, only 127 games, though, 36 homers, 91 ribbies. OPS a shade under 900. If he plays those other 25 games that he misses, you're talking about possibly a 45 homer, 110, 115 RBI guy, and just solid, right? Just a solid hitter in the middle of the lineup. Never seems to be rattled, and the defense is off the charts. How good this guy is.
0: If you had to buy stock in one A's position player right now, would it be Olson?
1: I think I think it would be. I'd split my stock between Chapman and
0: Olson. I just think both
1: of them are so similar in their, the way they're projecting their careers and the way they're going. You know, both coming up really in 2017 to get their first start, the defense on both corners, the power from both guys. I, I, you can't go wrong with either one. I think that's where the A's future is so bright. You've got two corner infielders who, if we do these top 10 lists, let's say in 15 years, they could be the top of the list. That's how good these guys could be.
0: Number four.
1: Number four is a guy who made a big p- impact on the A's. Uh, kind of changed the culture a little bit. Became famous in a movie, and that's Scott Hatterberg. You know, Scott Hatterberg began his, his career as a catcher. Uh, seven years with the Red Sox as a catcher and a DH. Really just a, a part-time player. right? Showed some pop. Showed some ability to get on base. And that's what drew him to the A's, was that ability to get on base and the fact that he had power. And we've seen the movie. We've read the book. Um, the part about getting Scott Hatterberg is true. They needed to replace Jason Giambi, and they weren't going to do it with just one guy. So they knew they, 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 they traded for Carlos Pena, and Carlos Pena was the opening day first baseman. I mean, Hatterberg didn't get his first start at first until May 11th, right? I mean, he was, he was really your DH. But he was working with Wash, and as we know from the movie, playing first base is incredibly hard. Uh, and Hatterberg had no idea what he was doing over there, and he, he, he'll admit to that. But he was confident in his ability as a baseball player, and he just had to learn. Um, it was never a fear of the position. It was just learning the position. But in the middle of May in 2002, right, the A's lost 14-17. They got swept in Toronto. They're coming home. They have an off day on the Monday, and Monday it's house-cleaning time for the A's. Carlos Pena, Frank Ben Jeff Tam, all sent down. Jeremy Giambi is traded to Philadelphia for John Mamrie. And Scott Hatterberg becomes your everyday first baseman. And you look at the the winning streak. He starts at first in 17 of those 20 games. Uh, Obviously the pinch hit, game-winning homer in game 20. But solid offensive player for his four-season with the A's. .259 average. 105 doubles, 49 homers, walks more than he strikes out, a good on-base percentage. He gave you exactly what you were, what you wanted, and he played in 10 postseason games with the A's, and he had 3.23 with an OPS of 9.45. This was a winning player for the A's. Now, is he a superstar? No, but he never was projected to be. He was to be this guy who would get on base, hit a few homers, and play solid defense, and that's what he did in his time with the A's.
0: And in the movie, they're like, Scott Hatterberg, he can't throw. But what does he do? He gets on base. All right, number three. Number three is
1: Brandon Moss. Wow. And again, a lot of that is is the impact that he had on these winning teams. Um, You know, he signed as a free agent for the 2012 season, but he's in the minors. He's in the minors into June. And he's in the minors. There's another guy in the minors in 2012. That was Manny Ramirez. Now, Moss has an out in his contract. If he's not on a big league roster, he can ask for his release and he can go away. So the A's had a decision to make. Were they going to bring up Brandon Moss or were they going to bring up Manny Ramirez? And they, made, they chose very wisely, and they chose Brandon Moss. And he comes up in 2012, and it changed that year. They have a three-game sweep in Colorado where he comes up. He hits four homers in the three-game sweep with six for 13 plays 84 games down the stretch, hitting 21 bombs, OPS over 950. This is a guy, Brandon Moss, who struggled with the Red Sox, with the Pirates, with the Phillies. Now he changed his his stance a little bit, went back to what made him uh, a hitter in the first place, just hitting for power. He's your everyday first baseman in 2013 with 30 homers, 2014, 25 homers, the wild card game in Kansas City two-run homer in the first, a three-run homer in the sixth. Remember, he struggled down the stretch in 2014 with hip hip injuries. So he wasn't himself. But he gets in that wild card game, and it was huge. I just think the impact that Brandon Moss had on the A's in those three playoff years, I think that's what puts him number three for me.
0: Love it. Yeah, and you know what? A super good guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, a great guy. You know, the A's brought him back uh, What was for the 2018 season, and I thought about bringing him – finding him a roster spot. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. But, you know, a guy who's a good guy, he hit that walk-off in the 19th inning against the Angels. And the great stories, I mean, that game ended, what, 1.30 in the morning? And who's out in the car, been in the parking lot for like three and a half hours? His whole family sitting in the car waiting for the game to end. Brandon Moss ends it in the bottom of the 19th.
0: All right, I think we know who the top two are. Uh, and I think we'll start number two, Jason Giambi.
1: Jason Giambi, uh, this, you know, he's talking about my favorite A's players. Uh, Jason is, is right near the top. Such a good guy. Uh, just one of the best. And for me, that was my year traveling with the A's. He, he could not have been a better guy. I've never seen just the way he dealt with fans. He would dealt with the media, uh, dealt with everything. He was just such a good guy. Second-round pick in 1992 at a Long Beach State uh, comes up. And he's playing left field, right? Why is he playing left field or playing third base? Well, Mark McGuire's there. You're not going to displace Mark McGuire until Mark is traded, and then they could put Jason in first base. But, and what was cool is Jason and Mark had a great relationship. Mark really took Jason under his wing uh, for those first two years together, teaching him the big league life. And I think Jason always appreciated that, and he always would teach it down too. There was something about those A's teams, especially in the early 2000s, is the veteran players always took care of the younger players, and nobody was left out. And that really started with, with the A's in the late 80s, with the X and Stu and Ricky and Dave Henderson teaching the Maguires and the Kachecos in the signbox, and they taught it down. And Jason was a beneficiary of that. And we all know how good Jason Giambi became with the A's, the 2000 AL MVP. Me, listen to these numbers. He hit 333, 43 homers. 137 RBIs, 137 walks with only 96 strikeouts, an on-base percentage of 476. Are you kidding me? These are these are video game numbers. And he wins the AR MVP. And he comes back in 2001, and he should have won it again because his numbers are maybe even better. 342, 120 RBIs, 38 homers, 47 doubles. On-base percentage at 4.77, slugging at 6.60, He loses the MVP, finishes second to Ichiro. And I think if you go back now, Jason would have won that. You look at war, which a lot of people look at now, Jason's war was 9.2. Ichiro's is only 7.7. Jason had a higher on-base percentage, a higher slugging percentage, and a much higher OPS. But Ichiro had the fanfare, right? Being a position player from Japan, everybody was all over it. The Mariners went 116 games. I think if you went back now, you'd go, Jason Gianni definitely should have been the MVP in back-to-back years. He was fantastic. And the A's did try and sign him. There was a press release. As he was a, he was a free agent, there was a press release before an exhibition game in 2001 against the Cardinals. The A's were going to release. And something changed in the last minutes where Jason backed out of the deal. And, you know, he we went to New York. He wanted to be a Yankee. He got huge money. Um, he talked about how his dad loved the Yankees, and, you know, he was good with the Yankees. He never, I think, he never solidified himself as a great Yankee. Um, but he comes back to the A's in 2009, uh, and it didn't go very well playing under Bob Guerin. only at 193, uh, but still a great guy. He's getting older now, and guess what? After he leaves the A's, he plays five more years. With Colorado and Cleveland, that's how good a guy he is, and that's how good teams wanted him around because he could teach, and that's what he's doing now. You look at uh, in Vegas, he has a lot of those hitters coming through. He is like a little hitting clinic. Joey Gallo, this great year that he had before he got injured in 2019, a lot of it's due to the work with Jason Giambi. He's going to be an unbelievable manager someday. Um, He's talked about it before when Colorado had an opening a few years back. He was mentioned as a possible replacement. He just had, you know, he's three kids. He wanted to wait. There's going to be a time when Jason gets back into the game, and he's going to get back in the game as a manager, and he is going to be fantastic.
0: And he hit an eight thousand foot home run off of me in college that I will never forget. Long Beach State.
1: Wow. No. Well, what what pitch was it?
0: Uh, it was a fastball down and in. If you remember back in the day, Long Beach State used to play on campus and they right. had their batting cages out in right field. The ball went over the batting cages in right field. That's how wow. far Jason Giambi took me deep back in the day. Number one is a guy that helped save baseball. We recently had him on the program. He went into the A's Hall of Fame this year, and he should be in Cooperstown and Baseball Hall in the Baseball Hall of Fame.
1: That's Mark McGuire, and I don't think there's any doubt. And I think... My favorite part of the A's Hall of Fame this year was seeing the emotion that Mark McGuire had coming back to Oakland. He had come back a couple of times as a coach, right, with the Dodgers and the Padres, but he never was back to be honored. He never came back to any of the reunions because he was always, with, you know, with another team. I think for him to come back and be honored really touched him because I don't—he never got to say goodbye with the A's. They knew he was going to get traded in '97, but he gets traded in the middle of the season. Uh, there was never any you know, thank you, goodbye, he was just gone. And I think he was really touched when he came back and how the fans reacted to him. This is Mark McGuire. This is, you look at those A's teams in the late 80s and why they drew almost 3 million fans. It was because of Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco hitting home run after home run. It was a place to be. Uh, McGuire did that. I mean, he comes up in 87. He has 49 home runs. 49, and this is just unheard of, right? The rookie record was 38 at the time. He, he blows by that. 49 homers, hits 289. Just unbelievable. He's the first player, he was the first player in big league history to hit 30 or more homers in each of his first four full seasons. Right? No one had done that yet. Uh, he also won a gold glove in 1990. He was a nine-time all-star. Just. Uh, impactful on this on this World Series and these teams now 91 he has a terrible offensive year it's 201 with only 22 homers and he kind of had to reinvent himself uh, he's going through a divorce um, and I remember the story he's watching the 91 postseason and this is the first time he was not in the postseason since he was a rookie uh, and he was he, he saw he saw how much he missed it. He missed being in the postseason spotlight. He reinvents himself. He grows the goatee, and as Jason Giambi called, he's feeling sexy. That was Giambi's whole thing with McGuire. You have to feel sexy at the plate. And by growing that goatee, now Mark McGuire feels sexy. He comes back in '92, gets 42 homers, 100 RBIs, leads the A's back to the postseason. Huge, huge factor. Now the injuries start to happen, right? Plantar fasciitis. He misses most of '93 and '94. Finally gets back on the field in '95, hits 39 bombs in only 104 games, and definitely is showing that this guy is just a—he's a home run threat every time he steps in the plate. And in '96, it all comes together. He hits 312 in 1996. You know, five years earlier, he's hitting 201. He's hitting 312, 52 homers, leads the AL in on-base percentage and slugging percentage, uh, more walks and strikeouts just he's he's an unbelievable offensive talent at this point. And in the 97, it, it's still the same. He's got 34 homers. Uh, he hit the longest home run I've ever seen personally, and two of the longest homers. One was in the Kingdome against Randy Johnson, a uh, night that Randy Johnson struck out 19 athletics. Mark McGuire hit one into the far reaches of the upper deck and left center field in Seattle. And then in Cleveland against Oral Hersheiser, we used to joke about somebody hitting the scoreboard up in left field above the bleachers. That one was then Jacobs Field. Oh, he hit the scoreboard. It was a joke. until so Mark McGuire hit the scoreboard. And I remember Greg Papa, who's calling the game, I'm yelling at him. He hit the scoreboard. It's just, it, it was unbelievable. Think about After the game, the broadcast crew would go down to the field just to look up how far that was. He hit the scoreboard. Unfortunately, the A's knew they were going to have to trade him. They weren't going to be able to sign him. They traded him to St. Louis. Did not get a great return, right? Eric Ludwig, T.J. Matthews, who did it, you know, was a fine part of the A's bullpen, and Blake Stein. Um, But still, he's the A's all-time leader, the Oakland all-time leader in homers and RBIs and slugging percentage, third in games, second in runs, second in walks. I mean, you talk about an A's Hall of Famer. It is. It's Mark McGuire, and it's just, it was so special to see him get the love that I didn't know that he thought he had here in Oakland. Right? It was great to see him receive that.
0: You know, one of the cool things we had him on A's Cast Live, and a lot of young A's fans, including my producer Commander Cody, they'd never really heard him speak. You know, because after right. his career. Uh, and when he became a, basically a hitting coach, after he had that conversation with Bob Costas about PEDs, you never heard from him. And he's and he's great. And to have him on, and to have people A's fans know about his greatness, but never really hear him talk. I, that was a lot of fun having him on the air.
1: Yeah, I think it's special to hear somebody you haven't heard from in a long time. And my was never a big talker, even when he was with the A's soft-spoken guy, um, you know, in an A's clubhouse full of huge personalities. Uh, it was easy for Mark just to kind of go about his business. But he does have some things to say. And, you know, after his playing days and when he got back in as a coach, um, he had a lot of effect on a lot of players, and he's very still in touch with the game. and He's going to get back into it something, and he at some point, and he does have things to say. And it was fun on your show, on the A's television show, to talk to Mark McGuire and kind of, you know, be reintroduced to him again because he's a huge part of Oakland history, a huge part.
0: No doubt about it. Quickly run down your top ten once again.
1: Number ten, Oakland A's first baseman. Number ten is Dan Johnson. Number nine, Bruce Bakhti. Number eight, Dave Revering. Number seven, the man we all love, Derek Barton. Number six, Mike Epstein. Number five with a bullet, Matt Olson. Number four, Scott Hatterberg. Number three, Brandon Moss. Number two, Jason Giambi. And number one, Mark McGuire.
0: That is your top ten Oakland A's first baseman of all time. You've been listening to Green and Gold History right here on AceCast, powered by TuneIn.